0: So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Luke, reading verses 11 through 17, but focusing on just 13 through 17 this morning. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man <laughs> sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him was spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. And may the Lord truly bless to our understanding this morning this word, and give me the ability to bring out the both the big picture and the small this morning. Let us pray. Pray and ask him for that. Heavenly Father, we know that all of our illumination comes from you, that your spirit opens our hearts and our minds to the meaning of this text. We know that on our own, um, we're we're, we're not going to be able to understand it. We're not going to be able to see either the small picture or the big picture. Uh, We can read the words, but we need you, dear Lord, to bring them home to us. And I pray that the glory that is here in this short story will be one that we will all recognize and experience this morning knowing that this is an encapsulation of your plan of redemption that has taken place throughout all of human history. And may we give you the glory for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as most of you know, I I started this message last week by looking at the 11th, 12th verse. I I had to split it because there's just too much richness here. But basically the way I want to start this morning is bringing to your attention that there are two glaring problems that modern men and women have that keep them from recognizing or understanding or even coming to know in a finite sense The the God of Scripture, the God as he is revealed to us in Scripture, last week we looked at the first part of that, and and that was that they really have no sense of history. Um, History begins and ends with modern men and women, and anything that went before their time or before the age of technology or before their own particular history is of little importance. In fact, not only do they ignore history, but they disavow it and say it's of no value whatsoever. Well... God's providence, which is what we are seeing here and studying, is the outworking of His eternal decree, His decorative will in history. So if you don't understand history, there's no way that you're going to understand God. Now, the second way is probably one of the most severe ways that people, um, it makes it impossible for them to understand God, is, as Dr. Sproul would often say, their God's too small. They've whittled God down. They've diminished him. They have ascribed or accredited to God certain human attributes. There are certain attributes that we have. They're called communicable attributes. These are attributes that God has, but he is also through the imago Dei, but the the image of God, he has given them to us. Now, the problem is that when God has these attributes, and one of them would be his compassion. We're going to see that this morning. Another would be his power. When he has these attributes, he has them in infinite degree. We have them to a very finite Degree, but yet, when we try to understand them or understand God, we project our understanding of his compassion and his power upon him. And that makes it almost impossible. How can there be a God who is infinitely compassionate, but is also infinitely powerful, who allows suffering, who allows good people, and I use that uh, term loosely, good people to suffer and die and, and, and seemingly evil to flourish, how can there be a God who is at one time perfectly loving and infinite in that love, but at the other time, other hand, perfectly holy and wrathful at our sins and warns us that he will send our souls to an eternity in hell? I mean, we can't reconcile those things. And I think the great the great problem that people run into, especially in modern times, is they try to comprehend the incomprehensible. They can't simply accept, well, this is what Scripture says about God. They want to talk about my God. My God is this. My God is that. My God has this kind of compassion, this kind of love. Rather than God being that infinitely complex being that no matter what we do, we'll never understand him entirely. We cannot comprehend the incomprehensible. Now, the reason I'm bringing this out is that these very ideas are in our text for this morning. The idea of God's providence and the divine appointment that we're seeing in this story. But at the same time, a compassion that allows such suffering, but ultimately for the glory of the God who is both compassionate and powerful. And we'll bring that out as we go through the text. Now, as I said, I had to divide this. So when we talk about the context of this story, what I have to do is I have to sort of try to recreate the image that we created last week, especially for those of you who might not have been here, try to recreate that image very quickly in your mind so that it's there, so that when we get into our text for this morning, you understand what's going on. So we're going to go back, start with just the 11th and 12th verse, and we're going to see if we can recreate the image that is there. First of all, Luke establishes both the chronology and the geography of this event. Chronology is important because it happens soon afterwards, right after the healing of the centurion's servant. So there's supposed to be a flow from one story to the next. Now, when we saw that healing, we saw that we sort of focused on the idea of the centurion's faith because after all, Jesus marveled at this centurion's faith. And we asked the question, was he really marveling at something that was inherent in that man, or was he marveling at the fact that his father had given faith to a Roman Gentile soldier? Well, we please I, I decided it's the, it's the latter of those, that God is the one who gives faith. And the reason that this is important is that quickly we are going to see a story very closely associated with that one where no one has faith. In fact, the one who's going to be resurrected is dead. He can't have any faith, but what a beautiful picture of of God's sovereignty in the process of redemption and salvation. Now, the second thing that we learn from those opening verses is the geography of this. It all takes place in a little place called Nain. It's still there, so we don't have any trouble w- knowing where it is. Nestled on the northern slope of, well, we call it Mount Moray, but it's actually a about a 1,500-foot hill, and it's there in the Jezreel Valley. We talked about how rich the history was all around that valley, a great place to talk about the providence of God. But we also noticed that it was only about a quarter of a mile from the border of Samaria. Now, of course, no self-respecting Jew is going to be caught dead in Samaria because that's where the defiled things are. Well, we're going to see that this is all about defilement because everything that's going to happen is going to happen outside of the city gates and with a dead body. You can't get any more defiled as far as having a dead body right next door to Samaria. So that's going to be a very important part of this morning's discussion. Now I want you to revisualize what we what we came to see last week. There are two crowds that are going to meet each other. Jesus has made a 25 mile hike. It's about 25 miles southwest of Capernaum. And he's got a great crowd with him, Luke says. We don't know where that crowd came from. Maybe they followed him all the way from Capernaum. I think more than likely as he passed through every single uh, populated area, people began to follow him, Which would mean most of these people are curiosity seekers. They want to see a miracle. And so there would be excitement and expectation in this great crowd that just happens. Well, it doesn't just happen. It's by the providence of God, a divine appointment. They begin to approach the city at the exact same time that a funeral procession comes out of it. Once again, another crowd. Luke tells us it's a considerable crowd. There was mandatory to go to funerals in those days in that part of the world. And so another crowd comes out and their demeanor could not be more different. It has been a particularly bitter lamentation. The man who died was young. He died before his time. He's an only son. His father's line stops. He's the firstborn son, which brought even an additional degree of lamentation. But to make it just totally tragic, the mother is a widow. The father's not alive. And so the mother, and she's going to be the focus of a lot of our discussion this morning, has just had her entire world come unglued and crash down around her. Nothing is before her except loneliness and perhaps financial destitution unless she can find someone who will take care of her. Now, these two crowds are going to meet outside the gates of Nain. Now... We we stepped back. We're going to do it regularly this morning. We're going to step back from the action of this. And we're going to look at it in its overall uh, view as a symbolic look encapsulating all of God's redemptive purpose in this one story. And so, therefore, the funeral uh, procession represents death. Because all are going to eventually die as a result of the fall. But here comes Jesus. And he represents life. He's the bread of life. He's the living water. He's the one who has life in and of himself. Now, death is going to meet life. And life is going to swallow up death in this particular instance. And it is a beautiful picture of the redemption spiritually, even though it's a physical, historical event. The last thing I want to bring to your attention is to remind you that that Nain is built on the side of a mountain or the side of a 1,500-foot hill. And so therefore, when they come out of the gates, almost assuredly, they're coming down an incline. And so when we consider this to be death and this to be life, death has the high ground. In fact, the normal flow of human existence is from life into death. There's nothing that awaits us physically except Sheol, which is the grave. And spiritually, The harshness is that in our fallen state, what awaits us is hell and separation from God. And so therefore, we have a natural flow with death having the high ground. And out of the of the of of the Jericho Valley, here comes Jesus representing life and is going to stop this procession in its tracks and turn death into life. What a beautiful story. Of God's plan of redemption. And we're going to keep going back to that. As we go through this. So with that said. That's kind of the background here. Let's dive into this 13th verse. 13, 14 and 15. Was will be where we spend most of our time this morning. So read with me if you will. And when the Lord saw her. He had compassion on her. And said to her. Do not weep. Now, the tendency when we read or you hear this passage discussed is to whip right on by this verse and get to the miracle when Jesus raises a man from the dead. But we're not going to do that. There is so much that we need to see right here in the way that Luke puts it. I want to spend a little bit of time. Notice that he starts out by saying, and when the Lord saw her, don't miss that. This is actually the first time in Luke's gospel that the narrator, who is Luke, and that narration refers to Jesus as Lord. Now, it's not the first time that word has been used. In fact, we just talked about it in the, the, the story of the centurion's servant because the centurion refers to him as Lord. And Luke uses the underlying Greek word regularly in 80 verses in his gospel, kurios, which could be a polite address, it could be a human master, or it can speak of divinity. But if you go back and you look at the almost, well, I think it's over 30 times he's already used it in his gospel, that every time virtually the word Lord refers to God, refers to some degree of deity. And so we recognize that when the centurion may not have known that Jesus is indeed the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, he, Luke is, is expressing his exalted Christology. He's telling us that Jesus is the King of Kings. And so therefore now he refers to Jesus as Lord. Now, the reason I'm making a point out of this is that we are going to have to make sure that we see Jesus in the light that Luke has developed. First of all, he is the Lord. He is deity. But secondly, if you remember right at the end of that story about the centurion, Luke reminded us that Jesus is also a man when he says he marveled at his faith. Because God doesn't marvel. God knows all things. There, nothing's going to surprise him. But Jesus in his humanity marveled at the man's faith. So in other words, what I want to make clear is it is the God-man. Who is making, and and I don't necessarily like that phrase. It's just a lot shorter than saying that person who is the son of God incarnate. Who has both a God nature and a human nature. 100% God, 100% human. That's a little bit longer than just saying God man. So I'll use the the term God man to speak about Jesus in his nature. He's 100% God and he's 100% man. Well it is Jesus the God man who is going to confront this funeral procession and turn death into life. Well, notice that he goes on and says, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Now, just, let's just pause there because this is hugely significant, at least the way I read this. Notice that Jesus had compassion when he saw the mother. There was no begging There was no pleading... There was no leper who came up and got down on his knees and says, if you desire, you can make me clean. There was no Syrophoenician woman chasing Jesus around saying, would you please clear, you know, uh, save my daughter? There was no, not even the centurion who sent a delegation to Jesus and said, Jesus, would you please come and heal my servant? Jesus walked up and he saw a funeral, which the rest of us would simply let go on by. He saw the mother and he had compassion. And he was unsolicited and unrequested what he does next. Now, brothers and sisters, I just, again, I I just want to kind of step out of it a little bit. I'm going to be doing this. We're going to step into the story, and then we're going to step out of it. Because, after all, this is a very symbolic, we do not question its historicity, but it's very symbolic in what this means and what it says. This is Jesus as the God-man Having compassion on a woman, compassion that is unsolicited and unrequested that will lead to an act of grace. All right, let me just repeat that. And those who are quicker among you are going to start grabbing onto this. We are going to see the God-man... With an unsolicited, unrequested compassion, we're going to see that compassion turn into an act of pure grace when he gives life to the man who is dead. And we'll be be coming back to that um, as we continue to go through this. Well, anyway, when Jesus saw her, he had compassion. Now, that word compassion, we need to tie, kind of look at just a wee bit. Compassion, it means to have pity on, to sympathize with, to have empathy with. Usually it has the idea that someone is suffering or in some kind of a bad state and you are able in some way to associate with that person. But when we talk about the way that we have compassion, remember, one of the problems we have is that we project on Both Jesus in his human sense and in his divine sense, we project our understanding of compassion on him rather than trying to see it in the context that it would be totally unique in Jesus. Now, as Christians, we are instructed to have compassion on people. We are to have compassion on those who are sick and those who are needy, those who are marginalized, those who have less than we do. In fact, as Christians, we are called to have compassion on all human beings, all those made in God's image. Now, in reality, most people have selective compassion. They have compassion on those that are around them, their family, their friends, those who look like them, those who talk like them, and those who think like them. And the rest of the world can just go on their own way. I don't have any compassion for them. My compassion is limited to those who were within my sphere. And and then there's a odd group of people who seem to have more compassion for animals than they do for people, for puppies and whales and and baby seals are, are more they have tremendous compassion on them, but they don't seem to have compassion on Um, the people around him. And then there's that absolutely crazy group of people, unfortunately, making themselves very vocally known and having a, a major political impact in the country in which we live that actually have more compassion on inanimate things like glaciers and trees and no compassion whatsoever to the millions of babies who are killed in the womb every year. That didn't make any sense. So therefore, when we talk about compassion... We need to talk about, well, wait a minute, what do we mean by compassion? What kind of compassion does Jesus have? Well, once again, if we're going to see his compassion, we have to see him as the God-man. Because he's both God and man, so he's going to have human compassion, and he's going to have divine compassion. And they're two different things. Now, one of the problems that we run into with even the human nature of Jesus is we forget something about him. We love the fact that he was human. We love the fact that he, he was tempted in all ways. Even as we are. But without sin. Don't forget the without sin part. And so therefore when we talk about something like compassion in Jesus. You have to understand this is perfectly and completely unique. Because Jesus is the only human being to have walked this earth. Who lived his life out in absolute perfection. So his compassion... is is going to be different than mine. I mean, I can put myself in the crowd where Jesus is, you know, to project myself there. And and I can tell you almost exactly what I would do to my shame. But I'm just being true, honest with you. I would have compassion on that mother. When I saw her crying and wailing and and I, I understood the situation she was in, I would have compassion. But that doesn't mean I'm going to Stop. I mean, I have things to do in the city. I have an appointment and I have to make it there. And and, and it's a good appointment. I have ministry to do there. And so, therefore, as soon as I feel that compassion, I'm going to start rationalizing in my fallen mind and in my fallen flesh why I shouldn't do anything about it. Why I shouldn't stop. These people don't know me. I'm going to uh, stop. I'm going to stop this funeral and, and 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 I don't know them. So therefore, if I go up and I touch that beer, I'm going to defile myself and that's going to completely throw off my next week and I simply can't do that. So what am I going to do? Even though I feel compassion, I'm going to step aside and I'm going to let that funeral pass just like, well, not exactly like, but similar to the way the priest and the Levite just kind of passed by on the other side of the road. From the man that the good Samaritan stopped to help. That's my kind of compassion. I've got compassion. But it's fallen compassion. Jesus didn't have fallen compassion. Jesus has compassion in a perfect person. A perfect body. His motivations are perfect. And so therefore when he sees this unsolicited. Unrequested. When he has compassion on her. He does something about it. And what he does about it is absolutely glorious. Once again, brothers and sisters, don't lose the big picture. As I keep looking at the small picture, don't lose the big picture. Because Jesus has compassion on the lost and on sinners even while they're sinners. Even when they're dead in their sins, he has compassion. And he does something about it. He saves those people. Well, also, um, if, if we don't see Jesus as the God-man here, if we don't see his divine nature, we err substantially, or as my old professor used to say, we err. We, we err in this. If we don't stop and we see Jesus as his God-nature. Now, what do we know about the God-nature of Jesus? What have we learned? What does Scripture tell us? Well, Jesus himself said to Philip, his disciple, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. And Hebrews tells us he's the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his natures. Colossians says that in him the fullness of the deity was pleased to dwell. So, brothers and sisters, when we see Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, second member of the Godhead, have compassion that turns into grace, that turns into action, you're seeing a reflection of God the Father. Quite often, especially in Reformed circles, and part of it is kind of necessary, we tend to see God in in His holiness And in his transcendence and in his power. And the reason for this is because so much of evangelicalism just wants to see him as a buddy and and as a friend and as the source of grace. And so, therefore, sometimes I think we go too far to that side. Yes, God is holy infinitely. But let me tell you, don't forget the fact that God is holy, completely compassionate and loving and full of grace and mercy and so, brothers and sisters, not only are we seeing Jesus without um, a, a hesitation, without an invitation, have compassion that turns into grace. We recognize that what he is actually doing is he is reflecting the compassion of God the Father. This is the God that we are seeing. He is unsolicited. And unrequested, showing this compassion, it is the compassion of the Father that will lead to grace as it is reflected or manifested by the Son. Let me repeat that. That's a major statement. In fact, I'm going to read it just so I get it right. Once again, what we are seeing is the unsolicited, unrequested compassion of the Father that will lead to grace. That is reflected or manifested by the sun. So the sun walks up to the woman and says, "Do not weep." Now those words, you, you'll find them oh quite often on our lips. What mother has not held her crying child, you know, who's skinned their knee or got a bee sting or another kind of boo boo, and, and says don't cry. It's all going to be okay. Well, when those words come out of our mouths, usually it will be okay. There, there will be a healing. It it will be over. And, and the pain that you feel is going to pass. So we can say with, with, with power and with meaning, it's going to be okay. Don't cry. But who among us could tell this woman not to cry? Which one of us could say don't weep and have it be anything more than just a hollow platitude? Because none of us can fix what's wrong with this woman. I mean, we say things like that all the time, don't we? Well, it always gets darkest before the dawn or tomorrow's another day. Yeah, sometimes that works, but not here. It, It just would be empty and hollow because there's nothing that can actually dry this mother's tears except to have her son back. So any of us could say don't weep and and it wouldn't make any difference in the world because this woman has a reason to weep and those tears are not going to stop. There's only one person on the face of the planet at this time who can turn this mother's tears of pain and mourning into tears of joy and that is Jesus because there's only one who can do the only thing that will dry her tears, which is to give her the life of her son. And that is exactly what's going to happen. And once again, brothers and sisters, let me just step back and let's look at this. There is only one being who has ever walked this planet who can go up to the mourner over their sins the one who has recognized that they are condemned before a holy God and that there is nothing in front of them except the grave and death and hell and walk up to that mourner, sinner and say, don't weep. Because there's only one who can turn that spiritual death into life and that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so therefore only Jesus can say things like, Come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I can say that to you, but it doesn't mean anything. Jesus is the only one who can say, do not weep. And actually dry the mother's tears. Actually dry the sinner's tears well. Well, anyway, that's that, 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 that powerful verse that sets us up for the miracle itself in verse 14. Then he came up and touched the beer. Again, notice the spelling, I-E instead of E-E. Touched the beer and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, I'm sorry, young man, I say to you, arise. What an extraordinary image. Once again, we see Jesus work the most extraordinary miracle. He is the Lord of compassion But he is also the Lord of power. Now I want to talk about his power over death and sin in just a moment. But let's kind of flesh this out. Because there's other things that are exhibiting the power of Jesus here. One of them we just talked about, the power to be able to say don't weep and actually be able to do something about it, right? There were power in his words where they would just be holy or hollow as far as if we were to say him. But there was also a power that Jesus had over circumstances, uh, over the crowd that was there. You remember when they wanted to throw him off of the, just across the valley, they wanted to throw him off of the cliff there in Nazareth and he just walked through them (laughs) as if they're not there. And another time they wanted to stone him in the temple and he just walks right through them. Jesus had a power over circumstance and over the crowds because there there was nothing that happened here to this crowd except stopping. Now, what, what I'm pointing out is this. Everyone in that crowd would have been astonished. We're not astonished because we know who Jesus is. But imagine, put yourself in that funeral procession. And here comes this other group towards you and Jesus does what he does or what we just read. Let me sort of give you a modern day parallel if I can. Imagine one of these ancient older cemeteries, you know the ones where all of the graves are above ground, and there's crypts and everything and you walk in narrow paths between all these crypts. Imagine that you are part of a funeral procession and it's very similar to this. A young man has died, perhaps he's left a young family and it's just a tragic situation and the lamentation is so bitter and the pallbearers are carrying the coffin down this narrow path ...towards the place of burial. But here from the other direction... ...on the same path comes a middle school field trip... Okay, what they have been, they've gone into the cemetery to look because there are a lot of famous people buried there. So the teacher has brought his 7th, 8th grade class into this area to show them all of these great literary and other figures who are buried there. Now, as middle schoolers do, they're not in a funeral. No one they know has died. They're out with their buddies. They're cutting up. They're joking. They're having a good time. They're sort of around the place. And these two groups meet Now, you know what should happen? The the teacher should corral his students. Take your hats off. Stand here and be respectful of the pain that is represented in this funeral process. Let them pass and then we can continue our field trip. But can you imagine if the teacher doesn't do that? But he waltzes up and stops the procession. Not only does he stop it, he tells the people morning, hey, don't weep. And then puts his hands right on the coffin. Well, yeah, you'd be astonished. But if you're big enough, you probably do something else to that guy, you know, because that would be such an affront. That's what Jesus does here. I mean, to to walk up and tell the mother not to weep, again, no indication that anyone knows that this is Jesus, okay? Just a a guy showing up with a whole crowd and he walks right up and he stops them dead in their tracks and he puts his hand upon the beer. There's power in Jesus and his circumstance and in his crowd. But there's another statement of power here. And I hope I can say this just right, because it's not in what Jesus does. It's what Luke tells us he does. Because Luke tells us that he goes up and he touches the beer. That's the litter upon which the dead body is being carried. He goes up and touches it and everyone stops. But the word that is used for touch in the Greek, it's a good translation, but the word is deeper. It has more richness than that because it is a word that comes from a root that means to ignite, literally to start a fire under. And that is what Jesus does when he touches the beer. He starts a fire of life under this dead body and he comes alive again. But when we step back from this and we see this as part of God's redemptive plan, and this is death and human death and a spiritual death, and Jesus walks up and lights the fire of the gospel under spiritual death, that is death that is going to spread throughout the world and change the spiritual landscape of humanity forever. There's power sometimes in just the language that is used. But the main power that we see here is the power that Jesus expresses over death. He came up, he touched the bier, the bearer stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And with a single word, Jesus expresses, he exhibits, he manifests the power to turn death around. As Clayton read earlier, beautiful passage from Isaiah, he will swallow up death forever. I love that imagery. He swallows up death. When death comes down in its natural progression and Jesus comes along and he lights a fire under the dead person, he swallows it up forever. Paul puts it this way, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The victory is in the turning around of death. But is that all that we're seeing here? Are we just seeing Jesus turn death around, reverse the the curse of the fall? Are we seeing something else? If you were here for the after church last week, I left this to you as homework to meditate on. Is Jesus eradicating death or is he giving life? Well, it's the latter, folks. Because let me give you a principle. You can't win the victory over death unless you have the ability to give life. You cannot eradicate death unless you have the power of life. Because death is really just the absence of life. When life is taken away, you have death. It's the privation of life. But in order to be able to turn this around, in order to bring this man back from the grave to to say, arise and have it mean anything, Jesus must have the power of life. John tells us that in his fifth chapter over and over again. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son gives life to whom he will. Jesus sovereignly gives life. Now, of course, he's talking physical life here, but also we're talking spiritual life. It goes on in the 26th verse of that 5th chapter of John. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. In order to give life, you must have life. And you can't have life gifted to you and give it to someone else. Only God has the ability to give life because only God has life in himself. And Jesus has life in himself and is able to give it. That is why he says, I am the way, the truth, and the what? And the life. Jesus is life, has life, gives life. And that is what we are seeing here in the back in John 5. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has Eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but his path from death to life. Once again, stepping back from the story. Yes, we are seeing physical life given to this man. But what it means in its overall plan of God's redemption is that he sent his son into this world of death to give life to those that he would. And when he does it, they become a brand new creation. Of course, we read in John 11, as Jesus gets ready to bring Lazarus back from the grave. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. The pathway to this kind of life is Faith, and what do we learn in the closely associated story just before this? That faith is a gift. it is a gift of God. And so therefore, we are seeing 100 percent here the providence of God taking place and not the work of a human being. Jesus gives life and conquers. Death, okay? So, if you were here in the after church, that's the answer. It is life that Jesus gives. It is death that he conquers because he has the ability to give life. Well, anyway, he says, Young man, arise, and the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. You know, I wish... And there's not a, an English translation that I have come across that actually carries the Greek word. Everyone says, and the dead man. But that's not actually the underlying word. The underlying word is corpse, brothers and sisters. I mean, the emphasis is on this is a corpse and corpses don't sit up and talk. Okay. There's not a hint of life in him. Granted, he's not a fourth day man like Lazarus was, but he is still completely and totally dead. This is a miracle as Jesus gives life to a lifeless corpse. And just so that we will know that he is fully brought to life, he stands, he sits up And starts talking. He starts speaking. He can rationally think. He has memory again. So that he knows language. Jesus has not just given him life in some kind of vegetative state. He has given him and restored the kind of life that he had. But it's not an old life. It is a new life brought on by Jesus. And Jesus Christ alone. Now there's one thing I want you to think about. Um, We'll come back to it a little bit later, but I want you to ask yourself a question when you again step back from the story just a little bit. And I want you to ask yourself this question in light of so much of the belief of modern evangelicalism. What participation did this man have in his resurrection? What did he do? Was there any discussion of his merit, any discussion of his ability? Did he ask Jesus, would you please save me? Did he say, I believe in you, Jesus, so that you can resurrect me? Nothing. The man's dead. He's a corpse. There's no life in him. Did the mother do anything? Is there any merit, any goodness, any reason that Jesus... Now, granted, when he was with the centurion, the centurion showed faith. And Jesus marveled at the faith and he and he healed the, the man's servant. But just so we don't misinterpret that, Luke has us now here with no indication that the mother even knew who Jesus was. She was too busy grieving. And there's nothing that she said or did or exhibited that would have led Jesus... To resurrect her son. In fact, there's no one in the crowd. Brothers and sisters, what you are seeing is the sovereign grace of God that is in response to his compassion. He saw compassionately this woman and his grace is what comes out. And that is what you are seeing. One hundred percent the sovereign election and grace of a compassionate God who looks upon some and says, I will heal and I will resurrect you as Jesus has done with this man. That's the power that we see before us. Now. We have a couple of more verses left, and as I said uh, at the very beginning of this, it's just way too much text. There, there, there are some things that we need to talk about, especially in the 16th verse, but I'm just going to have to breeze through them now because there's some things I want to say, and, and I'm already running a little bit late. So let's just take a look at these, and then we will come back to them in the after church. Um, Fear seized them all. This is a very natural reaction when you're face to face with the power of God. And I think that all refers to both crowds. The one that was with Jesus and the one in the funeral. Well, fear seized them all and they glorified God. Exactly what you would want them to do and what Jesus always desired to do. Which was to bring glory to God. But then we see the tragic interpretation of the people a great prophet has risen among us they said and God has visited his people that bears some comment especially in light of Luke 19 and what in another funeral procession of sorts when Jesus is entering the city at the end of his ministry and he wails and mourns over those who have missed their time of visitation even though they see this mighty miracle, they do not recognize Jesus as the Son of God. Well, anyway, verse 17 in this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding countryside. Um, A good way to get people to talk about you, I know that this wasn't Jesus' desire, but it's just what happens. We know that there are hundreds of people there, perhaps over a thousand. A good way to get people to start talking about you is to raise somebody from the dead that everyone knows is dead in front of a thousand people. People are going to start talking about you and that's exactly what happens as his fame grows. Well, let me step back from this just a wee bit and... Let me look at this as a whole. It is a microcosmic look at God's plan of redemption, his providence in action. I I alluded to this statement last week. Um, I want to read it for you this week. Dr. Sproul, in his commentary on this passage, makes this extraordinary statement. He says, if this were the only passage that survived from the life of Jesus, there is enough in it to reveal to us his sweetness, his excellency, his person, his power, and his saviorhood. We can live the rest of our lives trusting just this much information about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's quite the statement. And I think a statement that bears a little bit of explanation. So, once again, we cannot comprehend this and disavow history at the same time because what we are seeing is God's providential will coming to bear on this situation. So the situation is this. There is a sovereign God who controls, who ordains who brings about all that is, all that happens. God does not treat us like a puppeteer, but all that occurs is under his primary will. And nothing that is outside of his will actually occurs when we talk about his decorative will, his declarative will, that which God says will be. Now... At the same time that God has all the power and all the compassion, evil is allowed to enter into the world that he creates. It is far beyond the scope of this morning's message for me to go into question of why does evil exist or where did it come from or what was the process? It is enough for us this morning simply to establish that evil exists and evil crept And to the then perfect world that God created in the Garden of Eden, however, with the potential for sin, the potential to fall into sin. And when the devil brought evil into that environment and he tempted our first parents, they fell into sin. And Paul tells us that the wages of sin is death. Death. And so the curse of the fall from the very beginning of redemptive history was the history of a human race that comes down that hill that finds itself on an unalterable path to Sheol to the grave. And yet... God in his compassion and his mercy always had a plan of redemption. His providence is in place in history. What he says is what comes about. We are interested this morning primarily in his redemptive history. And it begins in Genesis 3.15 when he tells us that there is going to come a time when the enmity that exists between humans and God will be destroyed and that enmity will be turned upon the serpent who caused the problems in the first place. And then throughout the history of humanity, God begins to unfold his redemptive plan through the great covenants, through the kingdom that are established under David, through the law that he gave Moses, through the priesthood and the atonement that he allowed in that Old Testament sacrificial system, through the prophets who began to tell of another time when God would enter space and time and swallow up death forever as we read in the book of Isaiah. All of that culminating and focused on the coming of Jesus Christ, his son. And bringing to bear this exact illustration that we are looking at. Brothers and sisters, if we look at this little illustration, we look at this little story, as Dr. Sproul said, all of redemptive history is encapsulated in it. So let me see if I can explain that just a wee bit. That corpse coming out of the city. That's us. That's fallen humanity. Outside of the gates. Because in the gates is where you have a relationship with God. Outside of the garden where the angels guard the entrance. That's where the defiled things Come And on that downward slope, headed towards the grave, that is where all humanity comes. We are in terminally wrapped up in our sin and headed towards not only physical death, but unless something happens to atone for our sins and transgressions against God, we are headed for that dreaded spiritual death, the second death. And it's not just the grave that we end up in, it is hell itself in separation from God but God in his great mercy while we were still sinners when we did not deserve it when we're dead in our trespasses and sins as Paul says to the Romans God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners Christ died for us, This is an act of grace. This is an act of compassion. It is not an act that is based on any kind of merit that any of us has to do. He comes, he stops the procession. He lights a fire under the dead man and he creates life where there was nothing but death. This is unmitigated mercy and grace by God himself. For it says this, For God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And you have been saved not only by the grace of God, you have been saved by the providence of God, a God who knew you before the foundations of the world were set. You think it's a hike for Jesus to come from Capernaum to Nain, 25 miles? Think about the hike of the Son of God coming from heaven to this sewer that we call a world, coming from immortality to at least a degree of mortality, coming from infinity to finiteness of of a human body, setting aside his glory and allowing himself to be mocked and beaten and crucified on a cross. Why? Because he loves us to that degree. And it is his desire to swallow up death forever. He's the only one who can walk up to the funeral procession of human life and say, don't weep. Over your sins. Believe in me. And trust in me. And I will turn. Your tears of sorrow. Into tears of gladness. When the time was right, God sent his son. It didn't happen by accident. It is just as much a divine appointment when he came to your heart as it was when he sent Jesus from Capernaum to this poor woman. As Paul said in the Galatians, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. That's what Jesus came to do, to stand in the way of the funeral procession of humanity and to bring life where there was nothing but death. That is why he says in John that I came that they might have life. Life. And have it more abundantly. And we're not talking about material gain. That is a cheap and tawdry corruption of what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the resources of the kingdom of God. He's talking about the resources of God himself. As an adopted son or daughter of God. Resources and glory beyond your wildest imagination. That is what Jesus brought when he Placed his hands upon the bier and he started a fire that is still going today. You know the reason people like this story is the reason they like John three sixteen. John three sixteen not exactly the same, but it, all of redemptive history is wrapped up in that one verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish. But have everlasting life. That's it, man. That's it in a nutshell. And this illustrates that great, marvelous, fantastic truth. Well, for some of you, I think maybe I got a little bit too um, animated there. um, A little bit too, uh, I don't know, um, symbolic or figurative So let me see if I can spell this out to you. And and I I am speaking to Christians here. I am speaking to those Christians who have had their lives transformed. And the question that is before us is, so what next? What was it all for? Because I want you to realize realize something, brother or sister, that corpse is you. You. If you don't know Jesus Christ, that, that corpse is you also. And there's nothing before you but the grave and desperation and condemnation in hell. But if you were saved, that was you. You were that corpse. And at some time in your life, whether it was three years old or whether it was last week, god I mean, Jesus stands in your path of that funeral, stops it in its tracks, touches your beer and turns you into a new creation in Christ. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And Jesus, even when you were dead in those trespasses and sins, he touched your life. And as Paul said to the Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Why? Because God's love has been poured into your hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What a glorious salvation. You are given, and pr- pr- please see the st- see the image. All of those who think that they chose Jesus, wh- you have to throw the image out. It means nothing. Because there's no one here that chose Jesus. Jesus chose the man. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourself. It is the gift of God. Not of works or not of man, so that no one can boast. We're all dead. You can't choose Jesus when you're dead. Your salvation is a gift. And as great of a gift as it is. It's not the greatest gift. It's not all about you. That's what God's providence is, is, tells us. Yeah, yeah. History didn't begin and end with you. God's plan of redemption didn't begin and end with you. Yes, you have been given a great gift because God has given you the gift of life. But long before you had the gift of life, you were a gift that God the father gave to his son. As Jesus said in the 17th chapter of John, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me. They have kept your words. No one comes to the father or comes to me unless the father who sent me draws them. You brothers and sisters are a gift of God, the father to the son. And the son came so that he could purify you and dress you up and present you back to his father as his bride. To sit at the wedding feast of the Lamb and to be with him forever and ever and ever and ever. That's the glory that this little story tells us. Now the question I have before you is what does that mean for you? Why do you think God did that for you? If you are a Christian, if you have been redeemed, if you have been born again, this magnificent, extravagant salvation, why did he do it? So that you can dance with this culture? so that you can dance with the darkness, so you can get as close to the edge as you possibly can, so that you can bear no fruit, so that you will not live your life, quorum Deo, in the presence of God, so that you will not be the light that Jesus has planted under this man lighting a fire. Now, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You're the city on a hill. and And, and there's a lot of people out there there's a lot of funerals that are going on out there and in this age that we are in he says go out there make disciples of all nations take the light that is the light of my blessing and salvation and light the fire in every culture on earth. So therefore brothers and sisters what are you doing? How are you living your life? Are you living at coram deo in the presence of God? Are you telling other people about Jesus? Are you going to them and saying he changed my life, he can change yours? As simple as saying this, I would like to introduce you to the providential Lord of compassion and power. And when they ask you what on earth that means, tell them this story. Amen? pray. Lord, thank you that you oh, you are so, so clear in what you teach us. We really have to shut our eyes and try hard not to recognize what you're telling us in order to miss this. Lord, our salvation is because of you. May you have all the glory. May we spend the rest of our lives glorifying you on this earth. And when we leave this earth and we are in your presence, we know that your will will be done because it's always done there. And we know that your glory will be manifest to us. But Lord, while we're here, especially this body of Christians, this group who have gathered here today, may they live their lives Coram Dea in your presence every single aspect of their life. May it reflect and glorify you and thereby that we would become part of the solution to the horrible problems that face us because we know that they only find their solutions in Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.